So it'll make my life a little easier. We are going to make a secondary recording just in case that one fails, but I think we're good. Um, if you have not been here, this is a really good sign because uh, we're running out of these. Uh, that means that people are coming and going. Does, it's not necessarily good that people are going, but, um, but if you haven't picked up a set of notes, uh, these are here. And also there's an additional handout of eight um, absurd things atheists must believe before breakfast. Make sure that you uh, get those. And uh, again, for those who weren't here last week, we didn't finish number two. And so we're going to get to the very end of uh, number two. And as I've mentioned before, I'll say again, uh, if you have a pertinent question to what it is we're covering, please ask. Because I think it's important for me to be clear, particularly today, um, and also this may spill over to next week, because I'm going to be covering some interesting information, and there's some nuances of what I'm going to be covering that may be a little unclear. Because, again, I've done a lot of reading, and also if you don't know um, some of the topics that we're going to be talking about, uh, and also some of the history and particularly the theology during this time, you may have some questions. Don't hesitate to ask. I would rather you understand than say, what's he talking about? Okay? And also, in particular, when we get to some of the things that I'm going to be talking about, it's different people's spins on what has happened. And, and I think it's important to understand that too, because now that people are looking back over history, and much like some of us are doing today, it's, what happened? How did we get here? Why are we in the situation that we're in? Because it's a mess. It's really a mess. It's a mess in the world. It's a mess in the culture. It's a mess in the church. Why are we here? So we're going to continue to talk about that. But let's pray before we begin. Make sure I get this going, too. Lord God, we thank you again for the gift of this time and the opportunity to just digest what is going on in our culture and in history and, Lord, even in the church and the changes that have taken place in our lifetime that just seem to have uh, rocked our world in many ways and almost seem to be uh, new changes and, and shell-shocking us. And yet at the same time, Lord, these changes have not only been coming for a long time, they've been there. And help us to become more and more aware and, and even more, Lord, learning how effectively to deal with them within ourselves and with the people around us so that we might be effective witnesses for the sake of your gospel. Uh, Lord, be our teacher tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, remove any fatigue or distraction. Open our minds and hearts. And we offer you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Last, last week I made the distinction between what you might call classic liberals or actually, as some authors have said, modern liberals, and what some authors have said, uh, postmodern liberals, or just people that don't believe much of anything. Some have even called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, okay? And, um, and clearly post-Christian. And some of, the, some of the marks of what you would call liberalism... Now listen to this, in the 1800s, in the 1800s, liberalism in the 1800s, and I don't know how many of these you have in your notes, but a generous and charitable spirit towards divergent beliefs and opinions. 
Now, it's really interesting. When I say that now, what some of the people back that day would, would he, see and hear what's going on in the church and the culture, they would say, that's not what we meant. Because it has go, gone so far. You need to understand that. Okay, that idea and mentality and disposition of spirit in the 1800s was, they're saying, let's give a little latitude here. Because of scientific discoveries and scholarship, uh, because of higher biblical criticism, which we talked about last week. And again, if you uh, don't know what I'm talking about because you weren't here last week, uh, this is now online. Hopefully, Jordan has it online now. So you can go to our website and get it, okay? Secondly, a desire for intellectual liberty and a pursuit intellectually. Because, after all, we're educated people now. Remember who we talked about. We talked about uh, people like Descartes and Kant who are talking about, look, we've come of age. We know now, okay? We're educated people. We've progressed, and, and progress is one of our tools and instruments, and education, and the scientific method. So all of these are our tools. And we're figuring it out. And we want to continue to figure out. So let's give a little intellectual latitude. Third, free from creedal bondage. That's an interesting one. Free from creedal bondage. You know, when you say creeds, it kind of locks you in. You know, we don't want to be too strict here. Too legalistic here. We want to give a little freedom with people. So when you say creeds, that kind of locks people in, and we want to give people a little free thought. Now, this is where it gets a little squirrely, okay? You want to give moral and, and, and rational free range. And what's happened is over, uh, now we're talking a century and a half, basically, over a century and a half, this has gotten to an extreme, to the point that it's out of control. You know, okay. Original sin and human depravity, that doesn't really exist. Because we're basically good people. And we're basically intelligent people. And over time, things are going to get better and we're going to figure it out. I mean, just look at Las Vegas. See, that's the sad part. People fool themselves into believing that it's, that it's going to get better. And really, with human depravity and sin, there's always going to be challenges and problems. I've said this before in sermons. You know, anytime you come up with something good, for example, nuclear power, it's going to be used for something destructive. The Internet, it's going to be used for something destructive. To this day, the number one use of the Internet is pornography. The second, gambling. There you go. Sad but true. So we have these wonderful gifts at our disposal, and what ends up happening to them? They get corrupt. What else happens with the Internet? Identity theft. You know, it, it's just amazing. We have these wonderful gifts, and what happens? People who have gifts... God-given ability, this intellect that we're talking about, and is corrupt. 
and yet original sin and human depravity during this era is now denied. The trajectory of humankind is towards progress and good. That's what people believe during this time. Stay tuned. Paul, the Apostle Paul and his epistles are troublesome. Interesting. Inspiration of Scripture. Well, you know, it depends on the section of Scripture. I addressed that a little bit today in my little homily at the Wednesday service. Scripture still had authority, sort of. However, questions arose in its historicity, its scientific perspective, philosophical perspective, and experiential reliability. (laughs) So there you go. So how reliable was it? And you obviously could question and undermine most things in Scripture because of that. Religion and ethics are inseparable but divergent on which ethics and morality are universally true. Well, that's a problem. Might be true for you, but not for me. And Christ's nature and mission, well, we're not exactly sure. So let's just be a little kind with the divergent views on who Jesus is and why Jesus came. So that was all planted in the 1800s. It's not a modern phenomena. And that's why we say, wow, what happened? No, this is nothing new. I mean, when when I read some of the writers that I read, some of the people that I absolutely love, like A.W. Tozer, and he talks about this kind of stuff. It's like, wow, was he a prophet? No, what was going on then? <clears throat> A.W. Tozer. T-O-Z-E-R. That's why. He was very familiar with what was going on. Contemporary liberals. Scientific method reigns supreme. Scholarly discipline. Uh, that's where it is. Empirical fact. Contemporary philosophy and psychology are really, really What's going to help us? Now, what's fascinating about this, and I'm tempted how much to go into this because I really think that it might, might be more valuable later on to really go into this. I alluded to this last week, but this is how much I've underlined in this article. Okay, this is Reed University in Portland, Oregon, which is a rather liberal, liberal arts school. And it's amazing what's going on here. Let me tell you the subtitle. Arguments over free speech on campus are often seen as an issue of left versus right. But the left versus left battles are just as vitriolic. And some of what this article article says is unbelievable. And some of what students do on campus is amazing. And what they say. They shout down professors when they don't agree with them. Classes have been canceled. Lectures have been canceled. I mean, this article, let me just read to you a couple things. 
Last academic year, a dozen or so students continuously occupied the three-day-a-week lecture series by sitting in the front row of an auditorium with cardboard signs, sometimes taping their mouth shut in protest at the absence of non-white voices in the syllabus. Reed College students were ranked as the most liberal and second most studious in Princeton's review survey of its top 382 liberal arts colleges. Leftist politics and serious scholarship proved unstable last year as activists managed to cow to the college's administration students and faculty alike. Assistant Professor Lucia Martinez Valdivia, who describes herself as a mixed race and queer, asked protesters not to demonstrate during her lecture on Sappho last November. Ms. Valdivia said she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and doubted her ability to deliver the lecture in the face of their opposition. She wasn't liberal enough. Demonstration said Ms. Valdivia was guilty of a variety of offenses. She was a race traitor and upheld white supremacist principles by failing to oppose the humanities syllabus. I mean, it, this, this article is just amazing. A few weeks later, the college invited, I'm jumping down, Kimberly Pierce, the gender fluid director. I mean, it's amazing some of the terms that are used here. Boys don't cry, which was widely praised as the first sympathetic portrayal of trans people in cinema. You wouldn't believe what the students said as they shouted this person down. I can't say it because I don't talk like this anymore. I'm serious. F this white. That's what they said. And they shouted her down. They wouldn't listen to her. And, the re and, and it goes on to say the dean of faculty, Nigel Nicholson, later wrote that the students came to the session asking questions designed to indict the speaker. It felt like a courtroom, not a college. Now, it's interesting because what do oftentimes liberals say of conservatives? They're judgmental. <coughs> They're not open-minded. They're not willing to dialogue. It's the most fascinating thing. When you read this article, it's, most, it's an environment with limited representation of opinion and can be hostile to students who hold other views. Hostile. So this is the open-minded, progressive, intellectual environment that we're talking about. See, what's happened is the world has changed dramatically. And that's why I'm saying what they thought in the 1800s they were working toward, they would not even recognize today. They had altruistic goals in mind that they've created really in many ways a monster because there are no parameters once you throw out God,
anything goes. And that's what you're seeing. And that's what they don't realize. Okay. Now we're actually jumping to class number three. Okay? <clears throat> Other movements emerged after liberalism. You know, with the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment, higher criticism, the first and second great awakening, other movements that emerged. Um, and some people actually confuse this with liberalism. Okay? As the 1800s drew to a close, liberals became complacent. Why? Because we've arrived. We've arrived. You know, we've got everything working in our favor. We understand where it is. We've got the minds to figure it out. They've almost become smug. Conservatives, on the other hand, they're trying to figure out what happened. The Second Great Awakening happened on the heels of the First Great Awakening. And they're in their huddle saying, how do we respond to this? How do we deal with this stuff that's going on? And so, here we come upon... A time when you've got the liberals who are basically saying, we've arrived, we're doing great, things are on the uptake, but they're not doing a whole lot. And you've got conservatives that are trying to figure it out theologically. And so they're, you know, kind of assembling and saying, how do we respond to this? And they're not doing a whole lot. It opened the door for what became known as the social gospel. Okay? A lot of people confuse that with the liberal movement. It's different. It's different. A guy by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch wrote Christianity and the Social Crisis during this time. He was saying, here's the deal. The liberals have become complacent. The conservatives are huddling up. We've got to step in. Okay? The first, and great, the first and second great awakening resulted in a lot of social change. They attacked slavery, slavery, child labor laws, poverty, alcoholism. But now we've got this kind of malaise that has settled over. Christians, they're not doing a whole lot. We need to do something. Religious faith and moral strength will snap the bonds of evil if we just work. Uh, perfectibility in human nature is a possibility if we move forward with the social forces we have before us, with the intellect that we have before us, with the gospel. Um, the Civil War has passed. Labor unions have started to form. We've got a lot of momentum here, folks. Don't let it die. That's what Rauschenbusch is basically saying. And it's really interesting. He kind of did something that's a fascinating twist. He took some of what you saw in Puritanism. And what I mean by that is he said, look, the pulpit is for the preaching of the gospel. But you don't use the pulpit for social issues. The people go out into society and they work. Once they're converted, once they understand the gospel, then they'll go into society and they'll work. Liberalism, because it was a compromised gospel and said, we'll just figure it out. We've got the intellect. We've got progress. Things will just happen. They didn't do it. And the conservatives are saying, we've got to figure out how to argue biblically to get people back to the essentials of biblical morality and the gospel. So they weren't doing anything socially. So Rauschenbusch said... You preach the gospel, the essential faith in Jesus Christ, and you tell people you need to get out there and make change, and it'll happen. That's what the social gospel basically was all about. In England, what was going on during this time, 
is they were continuing this momentum with the abolition of slavery and child labor laws. In the United States, the primary focus was on poverty. <clears throat> and that's what was going on during this time. Now, what happened with uh, the people that felt the liberals kind of went a little too far and yet the conservatives needed to respond in some way and used their intellect in order to respond, another theological movement came into the forefront. It's called neo-orthodoxy. Don't you just love the way all this stuff multiplies? It's like bunnies. Okay? Neo-orthodoxy steps in. What's neo-orthodoxy? Orthodoxy, you know, it's related to the word orthodontics. What is orthodontics? Ortho straighten. Okay, donyx is, you know, teeth. Orthodoxy is the straight opinion, the straight word, the straight truth. Okay? Straight opinion, if you will. So, what the neo-orthodox are saying, okay, we've got all this stuff out there. So we have to come up with a new understanding. So we want to accept biblical criticism and use the tools that we've been given with biblical criticism. We want to use the, 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 critical, um, the critical tools and re-examine the historicity of the Bible. And when were these books really written? And do we really want to say that all these miracles really happened? Maybe we need to trim some of them. You know, because maybe they're just made-up stories. And so... The neo-orthodox are saying, let's hold to the scriptures. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's not throw out the scriptures. Let's come to it and say, let's take a different look. Through scientific eyes. Through modern, educated eyes. And let's, let's just take a new look. After all, we've got these new mores that have come in. You know, we're now living in cities, these big modern cities. Now, this is back in the early 1900s. We're progressive, we're developing a new life, and so we need to take a critical understanding. And one of the books that propelled this whole new uh, look theologically was Albert Schweitzer's The Quest for the Historical Jesus and Paul and His Interpreters. They're both by Albert Schweitzer. And Albert Schweitzer was kind of saying, okay, let's look for who Jesus really is, and let's look at Paul and how we should really understand Paul. And so they're taking this new look. Paul would, as it turns out, even with the neo-Orthodox, was still troublesome. Paul's always troublesome. For people that are wrestling with the Word of God being the Word of God, and truly saying, how do we understand Paul instead of, Paul's just troublesome, Paul will always be troublesome. Instead of saying, how do I take the word of God and understand it? One of the things about the neo-Orthodox that was really, really great, though, is they never compromised on the gospel, ever. They said, we will never give up the kerygma, the basic teaching of the gospel, the cross of Christ, the resurrection. As much as they were willing to, as they called it, demythologize. Do you know what that means? Demythologize? A lot of the stories of the Bible were myths. They were made up stories. The miracles were made up because, after all, we live in a scientific age. They were not willing to give up the basic gospel. This is really interesting. <clears throat> My first two or three years in the diocese, I was one of the new kids on the block. 
And I have to tell you, not all of the clergy in the diocese at that time were biblically minded and evangelical like I was. Okay, like for example, the guy over at St. Helena's definitely was not. And then they changed. You know, it's really interesting. All saints definitely was not. And so, anyway, we go on and on. But I got into this dialogue with this clergyman from Charleston. And I will never forget, because he said, oh, I don't believe the miracles of the Bible. And it kind of caught me off guard. Because I thought, I heard that South Carolina was like really conservative. And I thought, really, you don't believe in the miracles of the Bible? No. I said, what about the resurrection? Oh, I can't give that one up. And I thought, well, if you believe in the resurrection, what's the problem with the other ones? That's the most difficult. It's really interesting. Selective. And that's the way a lot of people read the Bible anyway. Selective. But that's the way this guy was. That's the way he's probably in the orthodox, actually, is what he is. You know, that's a prime example of a neo-Orthodox. Right there, this guy. And I saw one in the flesh. I've not seen many in the flesh. There was one in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul basically says, If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And that's where, you know what? Teachers in seminaries right now, some of the seminaries are teaching Jesus did not rise from the dead. Yes. Jesus is not really God. Jack Spong was saying that back in the, the early 80s. And he was a bishop in the Episcopal Church. John Miller at First Pres, when I arrived on the island, he was saying that. Yeah, he still does. Now he runs the church without walls. Yes. Hold it. Don't speak yet. All right. Yes, I am. Some people say um, uh, Jesus' spirit rose and not the body. Yes. Yeah, they separate his body and his spirit. Yeah. Or another way of saying it, dependent upon who you're talking with, by the way, that was... Johnny Hires, um, give your name when you speak, um, is that the apostles had a resurrection experience of Jesus rising from the dead. That he didn't really rise, but the apostles had a resurrection experience. So, I mean, there's all kinds of takes on that, how people understood what happened. But, I mean, you know, once you, once you give up the, the resurrection, then, then what, what do you really have left? You know, Jesus is an ethical teacher, basically. And even then, if you really read what Jesus said, some of his ethics would be questionable for some people. So, it gets really touchy. Now, um, what ended up happening with neo-orthodoxy is, um, as much as there were some interesting markers, doctrinal diversity, contemporary thought, ecumenism, they really started reaching out to different denominations and tried to get interaction amongst those denominations. They criticized optimism with the human race. That was a divergence with liberalism. Here's why. Neo-orthodoxy really got momentum post-World War II. After two world wars, 
people lost optimism about the human race. People began to say, you know what, maybe this human depravity and original sin really is true. Maybe we really do need a Savior who died on the cross for our sin. Because there's a lot of sin around. There's a lot of evil around. After two world wars, people were a lot more willing to take an honest look at that. And that's a good thing. People are not so much willing to do that today. They see things that happen in Las Vegas as an anomaly. Or they want to blame it on guns. Or on mental illness. Or what, I mean, you know, they'll come up with some reason and then it'll go by the wayside and then we'll move on again. Or they'll say we need to educate people more. That's always a big answer. It's the gospel. It's transformation of hearts and minds. But people aren't always willing to see that. One of the things Neo Orthodoxy also said, and, you'll, and it's interesting because you'll see this in some seminaries, paradoxes and contradictions are normal. You know what? If you're married, you see that in your spouse. That's true. Paradoxes and contradictions are normal. We do that. We're humans. Neo-Orthodoxy got that part right. We are not consistent. That's called sin. Okay? But what they're saying is, if you look at Scripture, sometimes there's just paradoxes and sometimes there's just contradictions. Well, I don't believe Scripture really contradicts itself. But they were trying to wrestle with how does science work and how does Scripture work? And they still didn't have the tools and they still were unwilling to say Scripture is Scripture. And we need to seek to understand it because the strength of liberalism and the strength of the Enlightenment and scientific method was still so powerful in academic circles. They tried to help people be hopeful, but at the same time realistic, especially after two world wars. And they said we need to take a new biblical approach that is both intellectual and biblical. It was interesting. Uh, during the 17th to the 19th centuries, uh, leading up to the modern and postmodern era, the key was always reason. Reason will give the answers, the power of the intellect. The tools are the mind, science, and technology. And you will still see that today. You will still see that today. The shift that has taken place since, in the 20th century, the individual is empowered. It's not so much the movements that you see in liberalism and the social gospel and neo-orthodoxy as much as the individual now is empowered. That began in the Enlightenment but that caught momentum on the heels of the 19th century as we moved into the 20th century. And you see that with incredible momentum today. Incredible momentum. The individual is empowered. How often do you hear, we want to empower the people? Or people need to be empowered. And these are 
something that everyone, according to this whole idea that everybody should be empowered, each of us has the own, our own right to come up with our own reality and truth, our own concept of existence, why we're here and what we're here for. Everyone should be able to come up with their own meaning for life. Why does the universe exist? And the mystery of it all. We all should be able to come up with our own truth for all of those. And guess what? They're all right. How does that work? But that began in the 20th century. Early in the 20th century, I might add. This empowerment of individuals. What also began to happen is religion began to get in the way. This really caught momentum in the 40s and 50s in particular. Religion is judgmental, narrow-minded, and prejudicial. Choice is a good thing. Authority is evil. Nobody should tell us what to believe or how to live. And sin, get this one, Sin is not personal. Sin is not personal. It's the fault of society. It's the fault of my genes. It's the fault of my parents. It's the fault of the chemistry with which I was made because I'm the result of the Big Bang Theory. But sin is not personal. It is not my personal responsibility. You'll see this spelled out in a minute. Ellen Ehrenholt, a journalist and author who wrote, listen to this, in the 1950s, who was making observations, he called it the five narratives. And he talked about before Christianity existed and then when Christianity came. And then there was a shift as we moved into post-Christian. Listen to this. Before Christianity... The body and the material world were less important. With Christianity, the body and the material world are good because God created them. And we can improve them because God has given us abilities to improve them. God has made us stewards. Before Christianity, history was cyclical. It just repeated over and over and over again. With no direction. With Christianity, history is moving forward. With the ongoing revelation of Jesus, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Before Christianity, individuals are unimportant. Only the tribe or the clan matter. With Christianity, all individuals are important and have dignity and deserve my help and respect. Before Christianity, human choices don't matter. We are all fated. Since Christianity, human choices matter and we are all responsible for our choices. Interesting. That's what Christianity really says. Stay tuned. Before Christianity, emotions and feelings should not be explored but only overcome. Since Christianity, emotions and feelings are important and good and need to be understood and directed. They need to be directed. And today what the modern world would tell you, and they need to be followed because they really are what we should be listening to is our feelings. But we'll get to that. 
You know, Ehrenholt believed, and it's interesting, remember he's writing in the 50s, that Christianity is for our good because the universe is created by a loving tripersonal God in a deliberate act. And if we follow these five points that he laid out, that we would be in a good place. Not that we're perfect, not that we're not born with original sin, because we are born with original sin, but that we can move forward with the, with the gospel. I mean, he was, he was laying out a good foundation here. But mo- modernity cut the strings, or began to cut the strings, and post-modernity severed it, because they removed God from the picture. Once you remove God from the picture, there's a new narrative. And this is the new narrative that's out there because most people live in their minds, in their hearts, or in actuality, their orientation without God. And so what has happened now is the material world, which God created originally as good, even though it's fallen, post-modernity, says there is only the material world. That's all that exists. There is no spiritual world. And therefore, everything, including love and morality, has a physical and material cause, which is why I'm not responsible, if you think about it. Everything has a physical and material cause. Any problems that exist in this new narrative can be solved with enough time, money, and effort. That's progress. Medicine and psychology will help. Sociology will help. We don't need spirituality because it doesn't exist really. It just fools us. Okay? That's the new narrative. Secondly, what would be called the historic narrative. Remember we talked about what used to be believed before Christianity. History is just cyclical. It just keeps repeating over and over again. Christianity said we can make a difference. We can move forward with the gospel. Late modernity says we are progressing without any divine intervention. We don't need God. We can do it. No divine influence or interference or help exists and is necessary. Because we have our brains, the industrial age, technology, communications, we can do this. And we're getting better all the time. Hmm. C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery. In philosophy, we used to call this the argument from the, for the imperialism of time. We know better today. Anytime you hear we know better today, they are simply appealing to today. By mere progression of time, that's what makes us supreme. That's why it's the argument for, from the imperialism of time. But there's nothing that says we're better today. Interesting. Some politicians would say that any religious action or proposals have no place in the 21st century. Because after all, they don't exist. Faith, God, unnecessary, doesn't exist. So why would you bring it into the political arena? 
The freedom narrative. The ancients believed everything is for the tribe or clan. Christianity says there's individual freedom and responsibility. The late or post-modernity movement says choice is sacred. And oh, by the way, I'm not responsible anyway. But I get to choose, just so you know that. That's an interesting one, isn't it, if you think about it. I get to choose, but I'm not responsible. What a deal. The morality narrative. Ancients said fate. Everything's about fate. We say there's a personal God with responsible moral agents. You know what's interesting about how postmodern people think about themselves? And actually, some of them actually do fit this category to a large extent. They think of themselves as morally good and responsible people. Do you know that? And some of them really are good, responsible people. I mean, Jesus said in Luke 18, no one's good but God alone. But in terms of the world's standards, they really are. They go back to the social gospel days. They really are trying to make the world a better place. But the reality is, is that most people in the world today are living for themselves. They really are. That's where most people are. They're trying to get ahead for themselves. But most people... Most people would say, I'm a good person and I'm trying to do good. That's what most people would say. And I have high moral standards. Of course, they're their own. But they have high moral standards. They're hard-pressed to say, when push comes to shove, what's moral? What's right? Help me understand how you determine what is moral and what is right and what is good. How do you determine that? Think about that one. The identity narrative. The ancients said emotions are unimportant. You just try to get over them. Christians said feelings are important, but the highest goal is loving God with the whole of your being and then loving your neighbor. The modern, postmodern narrative says feelings are to be examined and explored. After all, you're to follow your feelings anyway. Because that what gives you identity and makes you fulfilled. But it's really, really interesting because what happens when your feelings conflict or your feelings conflict with what the masses say you should do? How do you deal with that? You got a problem. You got a problem. You know, the, the postmodern people would say if you're religious, keep it to yourself. That's what they would say. You cannot tell others what is right or wrong since only they know. And there's an interesting line out there today, by the way. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Has anyone ever heard that one? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Does everyone understand what I mean by that? For example, there were people on the wrong side of history with the slavery issue. You know, and people don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so they're very cautious to take a stand. And that's why it's so critical for us to say, what does Scripture say? What makes sense from Scripture? What would God have us do in this situation? You know, what's the consistent biblical witness here? And why? 
That's really the key. And um, the last thing is there's a new term out there that gets thrown around, although people are very, very careful with it. It's called the sovereign self. The sovereign self. In other words, I, you know, you want to put it in Christian terms? I'm my own God. You know, I don't serve God. I don't serve Jesus. I serve myself. I'm the sovereign. I determine what's right or wrong for me. I determine my own worldview. I determine why I exist. I determine the meaning of life. I determine why I'm here, why the world's here, why you're here. You can't tell me because everything's subjective. There is no objective truth. The sovereign self. It's a great term for how people live and think today. And we will talk about that next week. Yes. Hold on. Name? I'm Cheryl Manila. Go ahead, you hold it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the thing that first thing that came to my mind when you were talking about this is, do they know the definition of the word accountability? <laughs> that's the first thing that came to my mind. Well, that's because they're only accountable to themselves. Right. But yeah. That's why. You know, when you think that you're the only person you need to be accountable to, then they do believe in accountability, but it's only to themselves. Yeah. Greg, this is Dottie Bowen. I have a question about um, just whether there are any serious writers of this new era that are starting to uh, write about fear, despair, a growing sense of hopelessness, emptiness, and inevitability. Well, I think, I think there are psychologists, psychiatrists, and even theologians who have addressed topics like that. But the problem is, is that unless people address what is even more essential to that, that someone is open to the gospel, they can't hear it from a gospel perspective. All they can hear it from is a perspective where I can, I can come out of it myself. See, it gets back to the sovereign self. It gets back to the power of my own mind. Or, you know, as I was saying early, earlier, psychologists can help me. Or sociologists can help me. Or society can help me. But it's the gospel that's the answer. Which is why, you know, when I talked about what I talked about with this class, that I'm going to give you their perspective, that is to say the world's perspective, so that you understand what you're dealing with. And when you go to present the gospel to them, you understand where they are so that you can address them in a variety of ways. But the only thing that's going to change them and help them to deal with their hopelessness, their fear and despair is by helping them to understand the gospel first. It's the only way you can. Hold it. What I was thinking about in this question is that I'm just wondering if we are on the verge of people starting to 
realize that all that you've just been teaching about the ideas of post, um, the postmodern world and postmodern mind are really breaking down a little bit. Uh, like when we have these big tragedies like uh, Las Vegas, when you listen, I was listening to some of the commentaries and people, it seemed like people who didn't have, believe in God or didn't have anything to undergird them are beginning to have a sense of, of inevitability. Maybe we are headed for the end of the world. Uh, leaders that would use um, nuclear weapons that could destroy us. Uh, I, I just wonder if at some point that mindset just doesn't hold up any longer. Yeah, you would hope that it'd be a great opportunity for the gospel, but it, it's interesting because that's why I'm saying Christians need to step up at times like that and reach out to people and love people and share the gospel with them. Otherwise, <clears throat> like for example, one of the commentators I heard on the news is, this is about education. And I heard a politician talk about this is about legislation. You know, you will always hear the world and the media talk about what their solutions are. But I heard a couple of the people talk about, I mean, I heard one guy in particular talk about how he prayed and he is convinced that God delivered him. Yes, he was an agnostic. Yes, he was an agnostic. And he said, and I'm going to start living for God now. So it's interesting how one of the potential victims responded. And yet you hear how the people in the media, some of them, are talking about how whatever their deal is, whatever their field is, they're going to address it with their field, legislation, education, you know, whatever it is. When it's really, as you just said, it's a time that's ripe for the gospel. But it's really important that the Christians are the ones who, when they're given an opportunity in a situation, when they're talking with their friends, when they're talking with their family, say, you know, how can you believe that the world is getting better? What makes you believe that? Or what makes you believe that, you know, really, um, this is all there is in a situation like this, that otherwise it would be hopeless for people who have family members who, you know, died in that for what? You know, for what purpose? And is this the end? And, I, you know, you didn't get a chance to say goodbye or whatever. If you knew they had faith and you had faith, you know you're going to see them again. I mean, you know, there's lots of ways to go with things like that. But, but if you're equipped with the gospel, then you can go there. But if you're not and you're not willing to go there, then the conversation dies. You know, that's why I'm saying we have great opportunities and we need to look at when the world is despairing, hopeless, struggling. You know, how we can step in because we understand the world's mindset, hopefully. Somebody else has something? Last one. Uh, here goes. Uh, Jesus said, uh, I've come, come in to, uh, I, I've not come in to destroy the world, but to save the world. And I believe uh, Jesus is having a hand in all of this. And uh, all of the dialogue that's, that's been going on about bathrooms and trans and, and all these things, and I believe that, um, that uh, God somehow is speaking to people, to his people. And uh, all of these things, that uh, uh, something good is going to come out of all of this. So, um. Well, I think good can come out of this. Okay? Um, does good always? Yeah. I think good can come out of it. I mean, you know, go back to Romans 8:28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
We need to use it for his purposes. Allow God to use it in us with other people for his purposes. You know, and, and if we don't take the opportunity, then it's a lost opportunity. You know, that's what I'm saying. Um, and that's why we need to use it for his purposes. So I think that a lot of it can be used for good. But in the meantime, you know, what's happening? Well, we don't know for sure. We don't know what the short run's going to hold. We don't know what the long run's going to hold. But we do know we can use it for good if we allow the Lord to use us in this situation. So, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, these are challenging times and difficult times, and especially on the heels of something like what happened in Las Vegas where there are people who are despairing and wondering and the answer is gun laws and the answer is more education and the answer is awareness when really the answer is the gospel and people being transformed by the renewal of their minds by the Holy Spirit, not simply by education. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in us and through us. That all things will work together for good for those who love you. And Lord, we seek to love you and we seek to grow in the knowledge and love of you. And We pray that this could be used in the lives of others for good. Such a tragedy as this. Where dozens have been killed and hundreds have been injured. And Lord, how the media loves to blame all kinds of reasons. Lord, we pray that in the midst of an education, an education system that really excludes you in many ways, in a legislation system that excludes you in many ways, that somehow there would be maybe a third great awakening to your gospel and that events like this could maybe cause a crack an opening where people are willing to hear the gospel anew and lives would be changed. And Lord, that we might be an instrument, one of those who can reach someone for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, continue to be our teacher and our guide as we seek to know you and seek to know this culture a little more in, in a way that we might become more effective witnesses and instruments for the sake of your gospel and the building of your kingdom. Bless us and keep us until we gather again in your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.